Wednesday Live. I'm Graham Lynch. We have an interview-packed episode this week. We'll be talking with the ANZ CEO of Ericsson, Emilio Romeo, about all things 5G. Ericsson supplies all the networks in Australia, so Emilio is certainly at the centre of developments here. It's also Ericsson's 130th anniversary in Australia, so we're going to take a look back at some of the history. We'll also be catching up with Andrew Wing of Transgrid. Now, Transgrid are essentially a power utility, but they've been in the fibre telecommunications space for a few years, and we'll be finding out what they're doing there and getting some of their perspectives on the synergies and the challenges across both those segments. We'll also be catching up with Rowan Pierce of Comms Day to look at Optus's big 5G showcase this week, as well as new pit and pipe rules for telecoms installations in new developments. We'll also be talking with Simon Ducks about two challenger companies in the telco space, Phonix and Spirit, and some latest developments with those two. But first, the NBN. The Federal Parliament has a standing committee looking at the NBN, and it hears from various stakeholders, such as community groups and business lobbies and so on, almost on a weekly basis. This committee hears a lot of criticisms of the NBN, but a lot of that is what I would put in the calm and constructive basket. This week, you heard from Laurie Patton, who has probably been the most prominent media critic of the multi-technology mix NBN over recent years, using his corporate experience in television and ease with the various platforms of media to prosecute the case for fibre to the premises, which, of course, the federal government abandoned in 2013 um, when it was elected to power. Now, Laurie's rhetorical style frustrates many of the targets of his criticisms, and it's fair to say that he has few fans in the federal government or in Bienco. But he got his platform this week, and this is how he used it. Oh, and a warning. The wind chimes you hear are from Laurie's porch. Uh, I'm Laurie Patton, and I'm appearing in my own right. I am the former vice president of Telsoc and previously the uh, executive director and chief executive officer of Internet Australia. Um, I now invite you to make a short opening statement at the conclusion of your marks, uh, remarks. I'll invite members of the committee to ask questions of you. Uh, thank you, Mr Chairman. Look, I will be very brief. I thank members of the committee for allowing me to appear today. And I note, Mr Chairman, that you weren't all that keen on hearing from me, but there you go. Um, I'm, I'm, sorry. Um, I'm, so I'm, I'm sorry, um, Mr Patton. Um, at what point... Um, have I indicated that I wasn't keen on hearing from you? I'm sorry. Uh, in, in the letter you wrote to me, but let's move on. You didn't want to see me. No, not at all, Mr. Patton. Let's be, let's be clear, Mr. Patton, because I don't want to start on this basis. And I'm going to be incredibly fair to you, and I'd ask you not misrepresent me. I indicated... I'm misrepresenting you, sir. You wrote once... to me and said that you weren't interested in hearing from me. I'm happy to table that letter. Now, what I would say is so I'm now coming Mr. to Patton, you... Mr. Patton, we're not going to work, Mr. Patton... Mr. Patton, uh, we're not going to work this way. Mr. Patton, this I want to speak. You said it was my turn to speak. Can I speak, please? And you can have as much time as you want. I'm coming to Mr. you Patton, now. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Patton, please. no, Mr. Patton, I will conduct this meeting. You will give evidence to this meeting. Yes, I have no time before. The, the letter that was provided to you is amongst the committee material, um, but I'm not going to have you misrepresent mine or the committee's position, that letter that was sent to you was sent to you 
by the committee. Proceed, Mr Patton. Thank you very much, but I will note that uh, the committee then reconvened and, uh, and voted in favour of seeing me. So I'm very pleased to be here. And look, I tell you that I'm coming to you via the, uh, the Telstra 5G network because if I was trying to do it on the NBN, we wouldn't be able to hear each other. Uh, this morning, my NBN connection was battling to provide 15 megabits per second. Uh, my, N my, my 5G Telstra network uh, gives me anywhere around three to 350 megabits per second. And I think that sums up the problem that we're dealing with. Basically, what we've got is we've got millions of people who are stuck with a broadband network, which is just not up to scratch. It's cost us, we think now, given the rubbery figures that we get out of NBN, somewhere around $60 billion, I think we're up to now, uh, for a, a, a version of the network that was supposed to cost about $29 billion. So it's probably uh, worth pointing out that Laurie was the only individual representing no one but himself who has got a hearing in front of this committee this year. But anyway, moving on, Laurie um, progressed further and came to his talking points. And one of his more compelling ones around the alleged higher cost of fibre to the premises, the reason the coalition proffered for favouring fibre to the node and HFC when it came to power in 2013. In New Zealand... The cost of deploying fibre has decreased dramatically since then. And thus, Laurie asked, wouldn't it be a reasonable expectation that it might have been the same here in Australia? Now, of course, there is one big difference. In New Zealand, the fibre provider Chorus owns all its own pits and ducts and thus doesn't have to pay to build them or pay someone else to rent them. By contrast, Nbienco here was a startup with no such infrastructure and either had to build its own or rent them off the incumbent Telstra. The choice was made to lease from Telstra, and that was the point that government members picked up on. Yeah, yep. thanks, thanks for that, Chair. Yeah, uh, Mr Patton, I'm, um, I was just reflecting on the comparison that we heard a little bit about between the rollout here in Australia and, and, and in New Zealand. Um, my understanding is that in New Zealand, the... Uh, the authority there has has access to the pits and pipes which are in place, um, whereas in Australia we are we are locked into an agreement where we need to pay Telstra for access to those pits and pipes. Um, I haven't got the figures, but I understand that that's um, that's a, a significant yep. um, a significant about cost a billion difference. dollars about a, about a billion dollars. Your chairman's researcher hasn't done their research, uh, or he'd be asking about the article in New Daily this week. Uh, and I refer you to that article. Uh, yes, look, one of the biggest mistakes in the in the multi-technology mix was the fact that we took uh, we allowed uh, Telstra uh, to take us to the cleaners. And uh, and I should just say, uh, for the record, uh, and I said this uh, a number of times, and uh, and in articles, you you can't blame David Foddy for uh, seeing Christmas come early. Um, when uh, the government wanted to buy his old copper wire networks, and you cannot blame uh, Andy Penn for wanting to buy uh, the NBN now that it's almost complete for a, for a, a substantial discount. The reality is that um, the NBN pays uh, Telstra uh, about a billion dollars a year uh, for its uh, pipes and its uh, and its copper wires. The deal that was originally done uh, was a much better deal. So, so would you accept that that would that would inherently then um, contribute to a very large cost differential between what Australia has paid and is paying compared to New Zealand? Yes. 
All right. Thank you for that. Just, can I ask a further question in relation to that? Uh, I think your term, Mr Patton, was um, took us to the cleaners. Um, by us, I take it you mean um, the former Labor government that signed us up to those definitive agreements, correct? No, I mean the people of Australia. Which government made the decision to, quote, um, sell, us, uh, sell us to the cleaners? To what, sorry? Which government made the decision um, signing us up to the definitive agreements that you were just criticising, Mr Patton? There are two different sets. You'll need to be specific as to which one you're talking about. They're quite different. Mr Patton, in relation to the definitive agreement in, yeah, in terms of um, using the Telstra um, network, um, who signed us up to that definitive agreement? The deal that pays uh, Telstra a billion dollars a year was signed by um, Minister Turnbull. Now, I'm sorry, Laurie, but that's just plain misleading. Goldman Sachs provided advice to the Labor government cabinet in May 2013 that the agreements that MBN Co had signed with Telstra, the so-called definitive agreements, under Stephen Conroy's watch, were worth $98 billion over 55 years. That's nearly $2 billion a year. Now, the government changed later that year. Malcolm Turnbull became the minister, and he spent most of 2014 trying to renegotiate those agreements, obviously with a view to getting them down in value. But Telstra clearly held the whip hand. No access to Telstra ducks, after all, meant no MBN. So eventually, the new definitive agreements were announced in December 2014, and as Telstra CEO David Thirty was quoted saying on that day of the announcement, he said, the agreements are on a like-for-like basis going back to the starting point and the cash flows are roughly equivalent, though it depends on the rollout schedule. In other words, if the network is rolled out faster, they'll see some of the money sooner. On the same day, Malcolm Turnbull remarked, the fundamental basis of this deal was not a penny more, not a penny less but that we, as in the government, would get ownership of assets that Telstra was previously being paid to junk. Now, that's the truth of it. Those high costs would have been baked into any technology topology, and they absolutely stem from the fact that NBN was conceived as a startup and had to beg, borrow, or build all of its infrastructure from scratch, unlike virtually any other incumbent fibre operator in the world. They are the facts. And the plain issue that many people have in this debate with simple history is one of the reasons there still is what purports to be an issue for debate. Well, this is Comms Day Live. We're moving on and we're with Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. How are you, Rowan? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good, actually. Looking forward to the weekend, but um, I'm more looking forward to our chat. Um, <laughs> That's tragic. I, <laughs> not at all. Um, it, it, we're getting into the final days of federal parliament for the year. And uh, Communications Minister Paul Fletcher introduced some legislation this week that impacts on greenfield developments. Can you tell us all about it? Yeah, so um, so it was the other day, and it was the, um, it's pit and pipe legislation, essentially. So since 2011, the Telco Act has actually required uh, incorporated developers to make sure the premises that they build have adequate pit and pipe installed. But those rules don't actually apply at the moment to unincorporated develop- 
developers. And so according to the government, there's around 3,000 premises a year that are kind of left without fibre-ready facilities because of this, um, I, I guess you could consider it a loophole almost. And so basically that means people are left with the cost of like retrofitting their home or whatever, which is actually a bit more expensive than just installing it during the initial build. So it's also it's worth noting that actually um, the, the TINF policy, telecommunications and new development, does require, you know, you need to have adequate pit and pipe and you, you need to, on request, have a carrier connector network, but it doesn't kind of rise to the same level as actually having in the Act. So, yeah, the, essentially the, the, um, the legislation introduced by Fletcher would actually extend those provisions in the Telco Act to covering unincorporated developers. And my understanding is the government is hoping to um, get it through Parliament pretty quickly, which there's not much Parliament left for the year, so... <laughs> Yes, they need to be very quick. So I, I think there's just a few more days left, although I, they might not. It actually, yeah, it's sitting next week. Um, now, um, moving on, uh, Optus held uh, what, what other companies might call an investor day this week, but because they're wholly owned by Singapore Telecom, it wasn't strictly speaking an investor day. It was more kind of like a business update day. We previewed it um, in part in the last episode of Comms Day Live. Um, but now, now the events actually happened, there, there was uh, quite a lot of new information about what they're doing in the 5G market. Yeah, and actually, like, and ahead of the business update, I actually headed along to their um, uh, Macquarie HQ as well, where they had a 5G showcase for um, some journalists and also also for like Optus, Optus stuff as well. So in, in the business update, the big news was really that the announcement that they have switched on their um, 5G standalone core. And they also had some details of kind of leveraging their mid-band spectrum holdings to kind of boost mobile speeds. Um, the, the showcase actually had a few interesting use cases, like the kind of classic things you see, all of these things around like, you know, uh, uh, remote control and telehealth, also using 5G for um, support broadcast services. And they, Optus also used it to show off some of their test results from um, their millimeter wave tests, uh, which they've managed to hit uh, four gigabits per second, or faster than four gigabits per second um, during tests. And actually, one, one interesting thing that did happen at the showcase, I was chatting to um, Kent Wu, who's the head of network access planning and quality at Optus, and he basically confirmed that Optus has actually applied for um, millimeter wave area-wide licenses. So we know that um, next year the, there's going to be the 26 gig auction in the first part of the year. Um, but there's also, at the same time, there's going to be 26 and 28 gig uh, AWLs. So, and they're probably, like, chances are, um, telcos would be able to get their hands on those kind of area-wide licenses earlier. So that's quite an interesting little move by Optus, I think. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ryan. Cheers. We're continuing our look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day. Hi there, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Okay, um, you had uh, a pretty good update this week on Spirit Telecom. Actually, they're not called Spirit Telecom anymore. I'll let you tell that story. Um, well, they've made an acquisition and uh, are moving in a new direction. So tell us all about it. Absolutely. So, uh, yes, uh, the uh, correct name is Spirit Technology Solutions. And the key for that is, uh, as Managing Director Sol Lukatsky uh, has explained to us, they're moving up the service stack, uh, if you like. At the moment, uh, the only two key things that, uh, as far as he's concerned, that they aren't supplying is mobile services 
and uh, quite advanced security services. And uh, the latest acquisition covers off the security front. He's uh, in negotiations, final negotiations uh, for mobile services uh, with a particular partner as well, uh, who remains unnamed. Uh, but this uh, was quite an interesting buy on the security side. Uh, you've got quite a fragmented uh, MSP market in Australia at the moment. And uh, the key thing on the security is that by uh, buying this acquisition, essentially, uh, it's a company called uh, Interlock and they're Brisbane based, uh, but they've been uh, supporting corporate and government customers. So essentially Spirit will be for the first time being able to service those customers as well rather than just the SME market. So that's an interesting move. Uh, it's a pretty decent sized company generating revenue of uh, 23.6 million normalized EBITDA of 2.3 million in full year 20. So uh, the interesting thing, as uh, Sol pointed out to me, was the fact that, you know, 12 to 18 months ago, they were literally just selling fixed wireless internet. Now they have a full service stack offering voice, cloud, uh, and now with these new security services, uh, it's opening up uh, quite a market opportunity for it. And the proof is in the pudding. If you look at the uh, November sales for Spirit, uh, they had 6.9 million recurring revenue, up 565% year on year. So a uh, good tra- trajectory for them. Now, another, another company that's doing well, but maybe is, isn't um, that well known, is Vonix. Um, in fact, I suspect some of our listeners don't even know what they do. <laughs> but, uh, they're, they're not, they haven't made acquisitions, but they say they want to. So, so tell us about that. Yes, uh, interesting company. Uh, uh, Vonix is a a tier two telco focusing very much on SMEs and uh, coming from a voice heritage, uh, mainly voice services uh, that they were literally doing. They changed their business model with an acquisition uh, earlier in the year, 2SG Wholesale, and uh, that essentially gave them access to uh, not only a a wholesale business model, but 150 new wholesale uh, customers on the back of that as well. So uh, when uh, I interviewed uh, Matt Fay, uh, the CEO, essentially talking about what was next uh, just after their AGM, he uh, was keen to describe the fact that they're in a position now and they've lined up uh, people to uh, help fund this as well, that uh, they're going to, on the market, to chase down some sort of uh, around revenue 10 million uh, targets and uh, they're going to be telco businesses. And like the MSP market, you've got a lot of telco resellers uh, in the market that are quite fragmented, probably been through fairly tough times through COVID uh, and uh, might be looking to exit the business. And uh, essentially, Matt pointed to me uh, and uh, said that the 2SG model was very much how they did it. They get Scrip involved and uh, then use share price accretion uh, to make it an uh, attractive proposition uh, for these potential exits. And uh, uh, on the 2SG example, I think uh, the share price uh, has uh, gone from $0.10 cents to $0.25. Cents. So you can see that can be attractive for some of these smaller owners if they're going to actually uh, uh, move on. So he's expecting uh, one, possibly two acquisitions uh, within the next uh, quarter uh, to six months and um, the first one within the next quarter. But obviously that's going to depend on market conditions. Okay, that's very interesting. We'll keep an eye on them. Thanks for joining us today, Simon. Cheers, Graham. This is 
Comms Day Live. It's my pleasure to be speaking with uh, Emilio Romeo, who's the CEO and Managing Director for Australia and New Zealand for Ericsson, a company who, of course, are very much at the centre of all things 5G right now. Welcome, Emilio. Hi, Graham. Okay, now, um, we're obviously getting to the end of 2020, heading into 2021. There are two large spectrum auctions planned in Australia next year. How important are they for the success of 5G in Australia? Yeah, Graham, the, the upcoming two spectrum auctions are critical in ensuring that Australia has a, a access to a pipeline of globally aligned um, new and in-marketing spectrum for 5G across low, mid and high bands. To date, 5G in Australia has only been deployed in the mid-bands allocations and the April option will be for the high band spectrum in 26 gigahertz, also known as millimeter wave band. And they will deliver super fast speeds and great capacity over short distances. And then later in the later half of 2021, we will see the in-market low band spectrum in the 850 and 900 megahertz band reconfigured to, to support the broader geographic 5G coverage. Now, Securing 5G access to this mix of low, mid and high band spectrum means that Australia will have access to the different layers of a 5G experience for our consumers and our customers. And the, the full mix of spectrum is required to deliver across the four major use cases of uh, uh, enhanced mobile broadband, uh, fixed wireless broadband, massive IoT and critical IoT. And in fact... According to our latest mobility report, our at least one gigahertz of high band and 100 megahertz of mid-band spectrum would be needed to really fulfill the, the potential of 5G and to unlock the economic benefit that it brings. So we're well positioned on that after this, uh, these auctions. Okay, well, outside of spectrum, what else do you see as a prerequisite that is needed for 5G to be a success? Yeah, as, as a country, Australia is uh, in an advantageous position where we can reap the benefits of 5G. We're rapidly approaching a future powered by 5G with all the networks that are being rolled out uh, that will not only allow existing industry to pivot and transform and regenerate, but also to encourage innovative new ventures to develop and thrive. And beyond the, the spectrum allocations mentioned previously, it's really important that 5G is fostered in an ecosystem that will allow us to bring the 5G potential to fruition. And and fortunately, this is a sentiment that is reflected across the Australian government as well, with significant investment being put into the development of these trials and test beds across industry sectors uh, like agriculture and mining, logistics, manufacturing, and uh, the, the, the 5G innovation initiative by the Australian government, which will be investing 22 million into 5G trials is a, is a great example of that. Um, how, however, there's still progress to be made, especially when it comes to articulating the benefits of 5G to both consumers and businesses. Uh, and their an educated understanding of the technology. You know, we will we'll be pivotal in uncovering the future 5G use cases. And, you know, I, I'd like to see that uh, leveraging the great technology position that we have in the country uh, would be and, and really focusing on leveraging what we already have will be will be great for the 5G uh, success beyond beyond the technology 
Now, of course, um, Australia is rated by the GSMA as number one in the world for mobile connectivity, and, and that's pretty much a, a 4G uh, measurement. But of course, uh, Australia is not an overnight success in that department. Uh, it's been a telecom leader for a long time. And in fact, Ericsson celebrated its 130th birthday in Australia this year. And uh, I guess you've been reflecting on some of that history. Yeah, thanks, Graham. I mean, you know, having been in Australia for the last 130 years, Ericsson has truly witnessed firsthand how Australia has embraced uh, telco innovation and each iteration of the new telco technology has been, you know, real turning points which which have transformed lives and industry and, and really society as a whole. Um, you know, if, if we look at some of the key proof points, just to mention a few, you know, we, we built the first public telephone system in Queensland in 1959 and then in 87 we um, you know Australians were making their first mobile calls on 1G using Ericsson's advanced mobile phone service also known as AMPS uh, then we launched the you know the 3G uh, network with Hutchison and for the first time Australians could browse the internet on the go and work remotely that was uh, 2001 and and we then delivered Australia's first 4G LTE network in uh, 2011 to deliver even faster speeds. And and then, as you know, last year we launched the Southern Hemisphere's first 5G network that was deployed by uh, Telstra in partnership with Ericsson. And then in November we followed through with Optus launching 5G. So it's been a real, real plethora of of launches across uh, every every G and. You know, we're very proud to be able to keep the Aussies connected and, and, and also to innovate. And we've had over 50 world first and Australia first in the last 15, 50 years, 15 years. And one thing your audience might not be aware of is that Ericsson was the inventor of Bluetooth before we opened it up to the world. And he was one of our employee, uh, Dr. Yap Hudson, who in Sweden uh, was given an internal project to remove cabling from the piece, from the you know PCs and whatever else was connected in the office, and out of that uh, came about Bluetooth, which he named after one of the Swedish Vikings. Just a little bit of trivia there for your audience, but that's some of the innovation that that we've seen over the years that we're really truly proud of. Okay, that's interesting about Bluetooth. I didn't know that. Um, now, of course, in the year 2020, we, we really can't talk about what's happening in tech generally without reference to the worldwide COVID pandemic. From the Ericsson point of view, how do you see um, COVID in terms of how it's impacted the use of mobile and technology generally? Yeah, look, I mean, there's no doubt that COVID has reinforced the importance of the, the telecommunications industry and, and being connected. I think I think it was uh, the Vodafone Idea uh, CEO, uh, CTO sorry, in India who I remember him saying back in April that connectivity is like oxygen during these times of the pandemic and how true it was. And but but on the impact side of things, our latest mobility report has demonstrated that how existing digital infrastructure has met communication needs in times of crisis. And particularly when it comes to keeping societies running and families connected. And and there the impact um hasn't been uh, so much as a, a decline, but it's probably in, in, in some countries an, inc- an increase uh, on, on the technology side when it comes to subscriptions. When we look at 5G subscription, uh, the growth in some markets has slowed down, but 
overall, overall, it was outweighed by other markets where growth is accelerating, and Australia is one of those. And if we look at, according to the report, uh, by 20, um, the end of 2020, we now uh, have increased the forecast to 220 million subscriptions that have been forecasted by then, and despite the pandemic. And to put into context, uh, you know, 15% of the population worldwide will have access to 5G coverage by the end of 2020. That's, that's 1 billion subscribers overall will have access to 5G. And over, over uh, the forecast period of the report, which is by 2026, um, 5G subscriptions are expected to significantly grow faster than 4G, uh, for, which was launched in 2009. Uh, but a number of key factors, uh, you know, but there's countries such as Korea and China and the US are growing very fast on 5G. And by the end of 2026, we forecast 3.5 billion 5G subscriptions globally which will account for around 40% of the mobile subscriptions at that time. And that means by then, 60% of the world population will have access to 5G coverage. And and we're now also looking at fixed wireless access and the connections for fixed wireless access are forecast to grow more than threefold and to reach 180 million by the end of 2026, accounting for about 25% of the total mobile network data traffic globally. So overall, we actually have increased all our forecasts for the past two surveys we've done being June and November, despite the pandemic. So overall, uh, the impact has been um, really a positive one or has not really impacted negatively to the growth when it comes particularly to 5G. Okay, now you just mentioned uh, fixed wireless there. Uh, and obviously in Australia, um, that's, that's one of the major uh, products that have come out of the early 5G deployments. But can you tell us about some of the other use cases for 5G that 5G specifically can enable that maybe weren't possible with the older generations? Yeah, I mean, look, 5G, there's no doubt 5G will not only give rise to new areas uh, of use for consumers, but no doubt it will transform entire industries. And, uh, you know, when it comes to consumers, what we're seeing is that the use cases emerging are linked to immersive services with, uh, uh, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, mobile, cloud gaming are some of the use cases we're seeing fast emerging. And when it comes to the industry side of it, Ericsson's involved in over 50 industries for the zero programs globally, which are looking at leveraging 5G for, for automation and for digitization as well. And, and locally, we're already seeing use cases across various uh, key verticals. Uh, some of the use cases we've already seen, and, and you know about this, you know, we saw 5G at, at the MCG when we launched 5G ahead of the 2019 AFL Grand Final in collaboration with Telstra and the Melbourne Cricket Club. And there was looking at uh, sports and, and streaming, and we've seen that as a big increase uh, through uh, the streaming uh, content streaming over 5G. Uh, we also saw Bank of the Future, where Ericsson partnered with Telstra and a financial institution in Australia to explore what the, well, you know, what will the Bank of the Future look like when powered by 5G edge computing? And, and then, you know, we see other cases across mining and, and spa manufacturing is a great case where we're combining 5G with cloud and edge computing to remove some of the fixed, heavy, expensive infrastructure and replacing it with uh, AGVs, automated guided vehicles and uh, replacing the smart scene robots, uh, moving it into the cloud, making the robots more affordable and more simple uh, or simpler uh, to use. So 
there's some of the use cases we're seeing um, and there'll be plenty more coming as well. Okay, and um, finally, what about for the average consumer? Um, what will they get from 5G that um, maybe they're not getting now? I mean, what we're seeing is, and, you know, we, we've, we've looked at, uh, you know, if we looked at some of the consumer uh, assessment of the reports and surveys we've done called harnessing the 5G consumer potential, um, there's no doubt that, you know, apart from the, the low latency, apart from um, the, the faster speeds, um, it's really all about the, the digitization of uh, services. And what consumers are asking for is it's attracting them to the immersive services, you know, being able to, to, you know, sit on the couch and have control of which player do they follow in a football game and, and really putting the control into their hands. There's some of the services that we're seeing. And if we look at some of the latest reports, what we're seeing is that it projects that 5G technology will underpin nearly 31 trillion in US dollars in cumulative consumer revenues by 2030. And the service providers, you know, they stand to, to get, you know, probably 3.7 trillion out of that. And across 17 markets that we surveyed, 25% of the consumers say they are likely to upgrade to 5G smartphones. And 50% of Australians, for example, are existing iPhone owners who are looking to upgrade to iPhone 5G models. And so service providers can directly generate 131 billion by 2030 from digital services revenues by proactively developing and marketing 5G use cases. And the opportunities come through enhanced videos, advertising, in-car connectivity, and extended reality. That's what consumers uh, stand to get. And it's about you know being proactive in driving 5G differentiation that the service providers could gain you know 34% higher 5G ARPU by 2030, for example, where you know, growing this consumer revenue at a cargo of 2.7% by then, as opposed to having flat revenue. So the service providers tend to gain a lot, and so do the consumers through the services they get. And, you know, um, from the findings of the report, uh, Ericsson has also established a list of key recommendations that some of the service providers might be interested in. And if, if I touch on a couple just briefly, you know, we <clears throat> we see that service providers should establish a high quality 5G coverage early, uh, and we're seeing that we say that because half of the early mover 5G carriers have already increased their market share, and the consumer market is definitely an attractive 5G revenue opportunity for them for the service providers. But leveraging the ecosystem partnerships to capture even higher share of the 31 trillion that will flow from the 5G networks is, is, a, is another recommendation. And service providers, we believe, should use cases and digital services as a way of differentiating their 5G offering. And whilst 5G connectivity remains the biggest revenue driver, the greatest revenue boost will come from bundling that with the use cases. So bundling the digital services with 5G tariffs to, to really be able to convince the consumers uh, of the value of the 5G network platform. So, you know, it's, it's a mix that both parties can, um, can benefit, the, the consumers as well as, as the service providers. And, you know, we've seen Telstra's strategy to leverage a network leadership uh, strategy, and that's worked. And we've seen that the, that has an effect on driving its market share back to 50% and above 
already. So we're seeing some of the benefits from that part as well. Okay, well, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, we've got um, a Spectrum auction coming up early in the new year, so there'll be plenty of momentum in the 5G space into 2021. Thank you very much for joining us today, Emilio. It's always a pleasure, Graeme, having a chat uh, with you, and uh, all the best, and uh, Merry Christmas to you on talk soon. Uh, and to you as well. Thank you. This is Comstay Live, and uh, moving on with the program, we're going to talk to Transgrid Telecommunications and Andrew Ng, Senior Product and Pre-Sales Manager. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Graham. Okay, now, most people know about Transgrid as an electrical transmission company, uh, but can you tell us a bit more about how you became a telco? Sure. Transgrid have a long history in New South Wales energy sector starting with the establishment of Electricity Commission of New South Wales in 1950s. And back in the early 90s, the Australian government began to deregulate state-owned monopolies and to promote competitions with potential cheaper electricity for all New South Wales end users. The transmission network was privatised in 2015. It was awarded to a consortium called the New South Wales Electricity Network for a 99-year lease at $10.3 billion. The consortium is comprised of Spark Infrastructure, Utility Trust of uh, Australia, CDPQ in Quebec, and Tory Investment, a subsidiary of Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And more recently, we also have OMA uh, has uh, acquired a stake in Transcript. Our primary responsibility is to connect both low and generation customers to our network across New South Wales and ACT. This might include connecting generators, wind farm, solar farm to the grid, and delivering electricity to their local distributors in New South Wales, such as Essential Energy, Endeavor Energy, and or any other major end users. At the same time, we have also expanded into adjacent telecommunication business as a licensed independent carrier, with key customers focusing on corporate and government, system integrators, service provider and carrier. We offer a range of data services by leveraging our fiber in the sky infrastructure, covering uh, some 4,000 kilometers across New South Wales and ACT along our high power electricity towers. In addition, we also offer co-location services to our customers for the installation of microwave dishes, wireless antennas on our towers and ground space adjacent to our substation. So although we are relatively young in the telco industry, we offer a full range of data service to meet various customer needs. Hopefully this gives you a bit of uh, background on how we get involved in the industry. Okay. Well, what are the, of course, the energy and telco markets are, are quite discrete markets and, and they're both characterized by a lot of innovation, a lot of competition. How does Transcrit ensure that its, its strategy and its framework for addressing both are still fit for purpose? Right. So before I explain our strategic framework, let's have a look at some of the latest innovations across three market segments. So in the financial market, we have seen introductions of uh, blockchain technologies, a digitized um, decentralized ledger for all transactions, and also the introductions of uh, cryptocurrency. For example, I think a well-known is Bitcoin 
or Ethereum. They are some of the largest um, cryptocurrency with the financial transaction capable of bypassing the whole existing banking system. This is true disruptive uh, disruptive technology in the financial industry. And in the um, energy market, Australia in, is in the midst of uh, an energy transition from dirty energy to clean energy. In other words, the transition from coal-fired power station to renewable energy, such as wind farm and solar farm. And then if you looked at the telco and industrial market, we have seen four waves of industrial revolutions. So during the first wave of industrial revolutions, we saw the inventions of steam engines in the 1700s. And as a result, we move away from manual production to mechanical productions. Then in the 1800s, we saw the second wave of industrial revolutions. We saw mass factory production become a reality with the help of uh, electricity. And during the third industrial revolution, we saw the inventions of computers, programmable logic controllers and robotics in the 1900s. This further automated the production process with an improvement in both quality and quantity. We are now in the fourth industrial revolution now. So the focus here is in how we could make use of transformative technology to connect physical world with the digital world. So what are those transformative technology? Just to name a few of them, like mobile 5G, cloud computing, SaaS, software as service, and smart everything icon, like smart sensor, smart home, smart building, smart city, and IoT. And also data, data analytics using AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, machine learning. So the question here is, how could Transcript stay relevant in both energy and helpful market? So if you look at the energy market, energy storage play an important role. It requires balancing act to provide synthetic inertia and fast frequency response service to keep the network stable. So battery storage is the cost effective solution. So Transcript has recently announced a big battery project with 50 megawatt lithium battery to be stored at our Walworth substation in Sydney. We also have been actively engaging in the planning arrangement for the renewable energy zone to lead the transition to clean energy in a way that maintaining the same reliability and affordability for everyone in Australia. If you look at the bigger picture, AEMO, Australian energy market operators, had recently published a 2020 integrated system plan, which proposed that by 2035, nearly 90% of electricity demand in Australia could be met by renewable generation. So not a small accomplishment if we can achieve that, isn't it? So in the telco area, just uh, I think I've got probably two questions I want to highlight. So what are the market needs? And how could we transcript overcome those challenges? So to look at it, the first point I want to make is uh, I think we always cover is the digital divide in regional Australia. And that is really the have and the don't have. And the irony is we always heard about, you know, how quick you know, the 5G network can go. But in some of the regional area, I think some of the people are still struggling to get a 5G mobile coverage. And the only means is probably using satellite. And the second point I want to make is the digital divine really driven by uh, some of the locations just really not commercially viable for anybody to invest into those areas. And the second reason is probably the disposable income for some of those 
people in those areas just do not allow them to afford some of those services or actually buying the, the more modern devices like laptop to make use of those services. And the second point is uh, on the, uh, I want to highlight uh, the market need is a last mile access connectivity. So, uh, which is, you know, customer could be actually make use of any uh, technology, could be MBN, could be fixed wireless, could be satellite. Uh, but that had a major uh, determining factor in terms of what speed those end users can get up to. The third point I want to, to talk about is the need for speed because, you know, um, there's increasing need for higher speed tiers. And according to Cisco, the wind forecast, the visual network index, the Australian internet, internet traffic will grow by threefold uh, from 2016 to 2021 with TAGA of 26%. And the fourth point I want to make is the adoption of the digital transformation. So the digital transformation could mean many different things for different people. For small business, it could be as easy as putting an e-commerce site um, to drive more business. For larger businesses, it could be involved in the overall process using um, digital technology such as cloud to enhance the business process, culture, and customer experience to meet the changing market requirement. So um, the way how we actually addressing some of those challenges is um, we have um, we understand both electricity and telecommunication services are part of the critical infrastructure and how they might impact a community or a country economically and socially. So I, I don't have a solution for you know how to address the digital divide for today. I think the, the message is the telco industry as a whole need to collaborate together uh, with the government uh, to address some of those critical issues. From our network perspective, we have very good uh, coverage from the regional area, and that it makes sense for us to actually trying to deliver uh, big bandwidth capacities to some of the regional point of presence or data center, and that will drive some of the uh, choices and also competition in those areas. Um, Transweet also built out to some of the 25 regional MBN points, so we could potentially leverage the MBN enterprise Ethernet service that uh, we can extend our service reach to the end customer. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of these services and, and compare the residential Ethernet service. So we have been quite actively working with NBN to try to promote that uh, service, uh, given that they recently have announced a uh, business uh, fiber initiative, which is actually reduced the price quite substantially for regional area. So that, that, that's a good overview, um, but obviously there's been, been something new that's happened just in this calendar year, and that's COVID-19, uh, and that's impacted us all. But from, tr- from Transquid's point of view, how, what have the impacts been like from your perspective? So, yeah, thanks, Greg. I, I think everyone sort of seems to be impacted by this COVID-19. It, it, I think there's a few things I want to mention. Is, um, there's a need to work from home, and then also it's under the social restriction. I think prior to COVID-19, most companies probably have around 10 to 12% of their workforce force working remotely. But then it's straight after COVID-19, and then you suddenly have a change of 100% of the workforce actually working from home uh, back in February and March. So as you would imagine, the demand for internal IT support would have been enormous to make that changes. 
And also then as a result of that, there is a requirement in terms of the demand for network security and also identity management, especially you know the requirement to bring new employee or supplier on board and off board remotely. And also the, the demand for workload migration into cloud services so that it's become more scalable. And most noticeably is uh, the increasing use of video conferencing, Zooms and Google Teams and WebEx. And, and, and lastly is that we see the large increase in bandwidth demand. And, and so, so that's a need for speed. So I think as a whole, you know, um, COVID-19 actually really compressed the timeline of digital transformation for individual business by more than 12 months. I think, uh, you know, for the first time, we can really feel the pain of the need for speed that some regional users have been suffering for a long time. So you just mentioned digital transformation there. Can Transgrid actually help its customers with their own digital transformation plans? Yeah, I think just maybe take a step back is uh, the concept of digital transformation is how to use technology to create a new process to become more efficient and effective. And the two main drivers behind these technology transformations I can see is, number one, the cost of the technology has really fallen quite significantly with the rise of cloud-based SaaS application. And then it become more accessible uh, for the small business. Secondly, is the capability of these tools have increased quite exponentially. And um, I think a recent study uh, carried out by IDC is this, you know, they actually uh, looked at the digitalization effort uh, would increase the customer the economy by more than five point five percent, and also um, uh, have it drive the growth by more than forty two percent. So we are looking at you know actively how to help the small business operator to actually do that journey on the digital transformation. And um, one of the way we Look at it. I mentioned about is um, you know having connectivity for the customer, uh, having a reliable connectivity and business grade connectivity for the, for the customer, and that's what how we're helping uh, the customer to to go through that journey. And I think we understand that the customer will be slightly different with their digital transformation requirement. So we're happy to work with them individually to develop you know any product new product together with our partner if required. Okay, how, do, how do you see Transgrid as differentiating itself from other players in the market? Right. So besides the basic service portfolio that, and also the operation, operational support that most carrier will provide, such as you know, carrier-grade network, service-level objective, 24 by 7 not network operation center support, we also provide a true network diversity through our aerial fiber, which is unique for our product offering. Our aerial fiber, for some of your audience that might not know, is actually wrapped around inside earth wire of a high power or high voltage power line. So I would say it is secure and no one could easily tamper with the fiber. I think we also regularly sort of clear some of the vegetation around our transmission tower. This would create a natural fire brick, which would be less prone to the damage of bushfire compared with terrestrial fiber. So with the recent um, bushfire inquiry, um, carrier now have the obligation to provide better protection on their uh, own network under the disaster situation. So we have tier one carrier buying our wavelength high bandwidth service just due to this diversity requirement. 
So um, I think also is as a critical infrastructure company, Transgrid also need to comply with some stringent uh, third foreign investment review board and CIC critical infrastructure centers requirement. So this requirement is important for the network security and control. So let's be assured that our product in the market also um, meet the same set of stringent requirements for our customer to enjoy. So looking to the future, what can we look forward to from Transcrit? Sure. I think uh, if you look at from the network infrastructure perspective, besides focusing on our new DWDM equipment rollout to cater for our transmission growth, uh, and we are also continuing building out to some of the MBN point, which I mentioned about is we already started building out to 25 MBN point already. So um, on the top of that, we also want to extend our network, um, our direct fiber network out to Queensland and also Adelaide. And that is we'll be leveraging our partner network, QCN, to Brisbane and also uh, Electronet uh, to Adelaide. So from the product perspective, I, I sort of mentioned, briefly mentioned about uh, we'll be launching SDN service uh, with our partner, Juniper and IBM. Uh, we'll be also looking at uh, how to make use of our new DWDM infrastructure in terms of capturing some of the customer opportunity for DCI, data center in the connect. So um, we're also looking at uh, how to uh, make our access network to be more cost-effective using fixed wireless access, either on the licensed and unlicensed spectrum to improve our last mile customer access. So uh, I also mentioned about we'll be happy to collaborate with any of our partner and supplier to make the digital transformation journey easier for our customer. That's fantastic. Thanks very much for updating us um, on what's happening at Transcrit, Andrew. And talk Thank to you, you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Bye. Just to note that that Transcrit interview was uh, sponsored. Um, also, uh, previously, um, the two government MPs interviewing Laurie Patton or asking him questions were uh, Tony Payson who is the chair of the NBN committee and Vince Connolly who's an MP from Western Australia that's it for Combs Day Live this week look forward to seeing you next week take care